You are listening to episode 36 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with Lee Lefevre. It's one of those decisions that I think was probably a little bit crazy at the time, and I'm not totally sure that it was the right decision, but we said we're not using YouTube anymore. We're, we're going to make CommonCraft.com the home of our, of our videos. And if you want to watch a CommonCraft video or if you want to become a member or download a CommonCraft video, you do that from our website. Hello and welcome to The Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I are learning in public by documenting our journey, interviewing successful, high-performing mentors in entrepreneurship, writing, real estate, fitness, health, and really just people being unconventional. Today, we have on the podcast, Lee Lefevre. Lee is the co-founder of Common Craft, a creative media company that basically created a explainer video category where they make educational guides, ready-made videos, and visuals that are used by educators in over 50 countries. Lee came on here to discuss a new book he wrote called Big Enough, which tells Common Craft and Lee's story. Lee wrote the book because he wanted to bring attention to an alternate path to entrepreneurship. He wanted to kind of break up the narrative in society about success is all about size. Success is how many employees, how much revenue, how complicated, how many verticals. And he said, you know, there's another way. You could put your happiness as your priority. You could set your lifestyle as your priority and just focus on making a business that actually suits those things. And maybe, just maybe, you might be happier trying that approach. So the book details how he did that and some of the things he did along the way. In this interview, we talk about writing the book and specifically a couple of those main ideas, namely how he imposed positive constraints, basically rules and limitations he and his wife held themselves accountable to, to follow the rules they had set out for themselves to keep the business to match their lifestyle. And we also talked about some of the choices they made along the way to make their business better suited towards a passive income so it was more divorced from their time and some of the different business models they considered to enable that. Kyle, anything else? Yeah, you know, through the interview, I think what it could really be distilled down to is their intentionality and, and how deliberate they were at the beginning of, of their business to make it something that's building a return on happiness and a return on time versus just your return on investment for in, in, in monetary terms. And that comes through in the conversation that we have with him. And it was just really inspiring to talk to him. So I'm excited for, for everybody to listen to him. I think it's a great episode. Yeah, so I'll play the audio now. Hey, Lee, thank you so much for coming on. We're excited to chat with you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're really excited. We, Kyle and I bonded as friends a lot over how we both love reading and both love books. And this is our first time interviewing an author of a you know, brand new release. So we're really excited. Uh, I'm excited that you guys uh, took a look. It's you know, my, second, my second book and the one that I'm uh, certainly really proud of right now. Definitely. Yeah, you're doing a, a great job. It sounds like promoting it. We had a discovery call, just, you know, get to know you with the guests we're interviewing in a couple of weeks. He's like, oh, y'all got to check out this Mixergy podcast. So I go to the website <laughs> and I'm like, right there on the homepage. I'm like, oh, there's, there's Lee. We're talking to him in two weeks. And it was kind of all these things colliding. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, but just for our listeners who haven't heard of your book yet, can you briefly introduce yourself and share kind of the quick pitch of what Big Enough is, why you wrote it and what you hope people mm -hmm. are going to get from it? Sure, sure. So uh, my name is Lee Lefevre. And I'm a co-founder of, of Common Craft, which maybe we'll talk about in a little while. But Big Enough, the subtitle is Big Enough, Building a Business That Scales With Your Lifestyle. And it's really about a perspective on business that is unconventional and is about more than just having a business that makes money. It's also about considering quality of life and happiness as sort of a, a shareholder value or a, a value that you think is important in your life. And, and part of the idea is to think about business strategy in the context of more than just dollars and cents. And it tells 
uh, a story that basically starts in 2007 that's uh, the common craft story over that time. I think it's for people who are really thinking about what's next and being thoughtful about you know, where their happiness really comes from, where their satisfaction comes from, and how they might, they might be able to build a business that supports that. And I wrote it kind of for that reason. We've been experimenting with our company, Common Craft, since 2007. And I think over that time, we've done a lot of learning and a lot of experimenting. And I felt that the time is right to share some of those lessons because I think that you know, business culture is changing a little bit and people are seeing that there's alternatives to the sort of go big or go home kind of perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Focusing on, you know, return on happiness or return on life in a business versus just how many dollars can I possibly force out of this, this corporation that I'm building. But, you know, that idea isn't something that I, I think comes naturally. So where did you first like encounter this idea of ensuring that a business scales with your lifestyle? You know, we were very fortunate in 2007 when some videos we made went viral. They were kind of the first explainer videos of the YouTube era. And we had lots of people coming and asking to work with us. And our first business model was being hired to make custom videos. And our, our second client was Google. And we explained Google Docs. If you, if you look for Google Docs in plain English on YouTube, you'll see it. It's got over 5 million views now. But that was the first time we made, made money from videos. And it was amazing. But we realized that... We could keep doing that, but we would have to hire people to grow that kind of business. We would have to have employees making more biz more videos. And my wife, Sachi, and I are partners. We've been partners since then. And we kind of thought about the business as a personal endeavor that had connections with our relationship. And mm -hmm. we saw that if we went down this custom video creative agency model that it could go in unexpected directions and maybe threaten our relationship. And at that point, it was like, what is it all for? Why, mm -hmm. would we, why would we take that for granted? And we started to think, well, maybe there's other ways we can use this opportunity to, to think differently about business. And, and I, I really give Sachi credit for being the one who first broached the idea of, of being a smaller, constrained business and one that, that was built around the quality of life that we thought would give us the most satisfaction. What were some of those specific rules you had set about early on? I know, you know, you wanted it to be at home. You didn't want to bring mm -hmm. on employees or some of like the specific, you know, kind of guide guidelines you put in place to give yourselves direction and some, some clear rules as to where to go and where not to go. Yeah, those were, those are the big ones. We reached sort of a breaking point in 2008. We were really burned out making good money, which was nice, but we weren't, we weren't happy. We needed to figure out what business we wanted to be in. So there really was a specific day where we sat down and committed to a set of constraints and the, the biggest ones that we were not going to hire, we were going to remain a two person business. Mm. And that constraint continues to this day. And the second one was that we would always work from home. We would never have an office. We, we love being at home and, and working from home. I've worked from home since 2003, so I'm very used to it by now. Another one was thinking long-term, that we were not going to shoot for the biggest money we could make in the short term, that we were going to work with business models that took time to develop, and we were prepared to weather a storm to get to the the business model that we thought would work over the long term and that we would focus on time like we think that time is one of these things you know in the book i say time is the new wealth i think it's something that is has growing importance to people and we wanted to be in control of our time and wanted our business to help us be control of our time because a lot of people they go into business uh, lose control pretty quickly and that can that can cause problems so those those are some those that's the basic set of constraints 
Yeah, I think that last one, you know, a lot of people don't know when to say no to things. And I, I imagine that would be something that you have to do all the time in order to keep absolute control of your time. But how do you, how do you stay accountable to yourself and your wife with you to these rules? Like, we're not going to work after XPM or, or how, do you, how do you stay on, on that path? Yeah, it's not it's not easy, especially early on. It, it doesn't it did involve saying uh, no a lot. And you know, when we sort of started to phase out custom videos, we were getting you know multiple leads a day for custom videos, and it it was really hard. And I it it was I felt personally kind of bad about it because I hated saying no so much and, and turning down amazing opportunities and leaving money on the table, but we really were committed. And I think that having a personal relationship where you're not just committed to an idea, but you're committed to another person in terms mm -hmm. of, of this promise that you've made together, I think is a really powerful part of that. That it's not just you, it's, it's you as a unit, as a business or a partnership that, that really makes it work. And I think that we both really just believed that that we could do it over time, that it wouldn't happen quickly, but we could make the transition we wanted to make over time. And I'm by nature an optimistic person. I, I usually try to see the, the good in things. And um, I believe that we could do it. That's great. You talk a lot about that long-term mindset and that's kind of another thing that I wanna focus on next, how you kind of use that long-term mindset when thinking about competition. Cause like you said, you know, there's clearly once you kind of pioneer this category with, you know, the great video that led to so many signups at Dropbox and Google Docs, all of these other people are like, it can't be that hard to, you know, rearrange stick figures on a camera and make it a very complicated concept seem simple. I mean, there's an art to doing mm -hmm. it well, obviously, and that's what your, your first book was about, but other people realize this opportunity and you talk a lot in the book about, you know, these copycats in the competition. So how did you kind of deal with that when that sprung up and how did all of that fit into what we've already talked about with constraints yeah. and long-term thinking? Yep. Yeah, definitely. It was uh, really this sort of observation that we had a lot of demand coming our direction, people that wanted those videos. And we thought it was a shame to not be a part of finding a supply for that demand. And maybe there was a business or sort of a service we could provide that, that was a matching service. So um, instead of trying to compete head to head with other video producers who suddenly sprang up and said that they did explainer videos too, we went to the ones that we thought were doing the best work and said, hey, look, we, we're getting a lot of leads. We're happy to share, share them with you. Here's how it works. We will, we're creating something called the Explainer Network. And you'll, you can pay a monthly fee to be a part of the network and we'll have your company listed in you know, a small group of other mm -hmm. producers. And then when, when we can't service that demand, we'll send it to the network and you'll be competing with them. And that was a business that went on for years and was a very lightweight business to manage. So we could stay a two person business and we made decisions to make it lightweight. So for instance, a lot of marketplaces like that work on a rev revenue share basis where mm -hmm. um, we get a percentage of the money that they make. Um, but that requires management, that requires overhead to understand those transactions and, and to make sure that every, everybody's above board. And so we said, you know what, we're just gonna charge a, a flat amount for everybody. For no matter how much little or more money, most money they make, uh, we'll get the same amount every month. And it was a trade-off. We could have possibly made more money, but we might've had less time. So we chose the, the lightweight route to making that happen. And again, it, it went for years and years and, and did really well for us. That's a really cool concept of, of not taking the, the revenue sharing model and you're really just leaving money on the plate. And you know that speaks mm -hmm. to you and her sticking to your constraints that you'd set yourself. 
set for yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that part of what, well, just let me really quickly add this. I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, part of that is that being a two person business, what we needed to support ourselves was relatively minor. It didn't take that much for a company to support us. So once our needs were met and we were able to save money and have insurance and, and kind of live our lives normally, then I think that there was, you could have a different perspective at that point. And, and that's to me, the, the beauty of, of staying small is that you're not, you're not trying to finance the future so much. Like you're trying to, to support yourself more than anything. And if you can get above that, then, then that's good too. <laughs> then it frees you up to make decisions like uh, about mm-hmm. where you want to go from there. But briefly, I just wanted you, uh, wanted to ask you to explain to our audience what an explainer video is, just in case mm-hmm. they're unfamiliar with, with the concept. Sure. Sure. So explainer videos are really about intent. It's about what the goal of the video is and, and, you know, sort of what the goal of the producer is, I would say. And just like the name sounds, usually it's a video that's designed to explain a subject clearly and usually succinctly. You know, the sort of genre is known often for animation and, Mm -hmm. you know, common crap videos are have been in the past paper cutouts on a whiteboard that uses stop motion animation to tell a story. Uh, now there's all kinds of different animation you know, forms, but for the most part, a lot of uh, explainer videos are animated because they're, it's, it's easier to kind of explain things, I think, uh, in more of a clear way using animations versus a, t- a talking head because visuals are often matched really closely with the voiceover. So if I'm like a a new software startup and I I provide a service to someone, I would come to you and say, can you explain succinctly and clearly how to use this product so that we can send this video to new users, right? That is definitely a model for it. I'm a little bit biased because we have our own perspective on explanation. Um, There's a fine line between explanation and selling and explanation and, and education. I prefer to see explainer videos more in the education realm. I don't think that advertisers need a lot of help. They're fine the way they are. I don't really wanna make advertising. I wanna educate. And I think that that's the perspective, even, even, even if we are hired, and we, we do work, do some custom work now, but even if we are hired, our goal is not necessarily making a tutorial. And this is true with our, our library of videos, like our business is based on original content. And we say that, you know, our videos are not how to do something. It's about changing a perspective. It's about opening someone's mind to a new way of looking at an idea. So we recently explained disinformation, for instance, that's our most recent original video. And it's not about like the mechanics of disinformation so much as it is the big idea and helping people understand that this is a thing that exists in the world that they should care about. I want to ask a little bit about the kind of education side of the business, because, you know, the story you'd already mentioned about the explainer network was a really interesting business model in its own right, but there's other interesting business model innovation that goes on here and kind of, I think what I've kind of studied preparing for this interview, how on YouTube you have the videos, you know, only up to, a certain level of quality. So then for the people that actually want to use it in a formal educational context, you know, that's where they pay the premium. Can you kind of explain how that dynamic worked where you could, you know, maximize the educational impact of it, but again, still survive as a business? Yeah. Yeah. That was a tough thing for us because we started on Facebook. I'm sorry. We started on YouTube and that was what people knew that people thought that common craft was just a YouTube channel. But over time, educators and others came to us and said that they wanted to download the video files and they wanted to license our work for use in corporations and and school districts and things like that. So suddenly we had an opportunity to, you know, 
be in the licensing business essentially, which means we can make a video once and sell it multiple times. And if we kept sharing videos on YouTube, we couldn't be in that industry really like because we you know youtube videos are are free we could use youtube for promotions and things but in terms of like pu putting four video full videos on youtube it, it was a mismatch with that licensing business that we really wanted to be in so we made the decision it's one of those decisions that i, I think was probably a little bit crazy at the time and i'm not totally sure that it was the right decision but we said we're not using youtube anymore we're we're going to make commoncraft.com the home of our of our videos. And if you want to watch a Common Craft video or if you want to become a member or download a Common Craft video, you do that from our website. And again, that was focused on us having control. You know, I'm concerned with platform risk. You know, I don't want I don't want to build my empire on someone else's land when they can change the algorithm, they can change the rule. And again, it's a trade-off, right? We we were not as popular, we were not as visible to to our audience, but we were betting that we could make a long-term effort to make Common Craft the home of our videos so that we could be in control. And that meant that when someone searches for disinformation explained, our video shows up instead of a video on YouTube. A video at Common Craft shows up instead of a video on YouTube. And that's, that's important to our business. I really like that idea of, of not building your empire on someone else's land. You know, I, I think that a lot of these like Facebook advertising agencies and, and things like that, are you know building these very complex ways of going about uh, making money and, and selling their business that work for some period of time until one button gets changed and their their entire thing is wiped out. And yeah. I, you know I've heard a lot about that with like newsletters and Substack and how if they change one pricing model, like your your whole business goes away. So building mm -hmm. building your your list and, and your group of people, your thousand true fans on your website. I'm sure is, is really important and, you know, something that Lewis and I have talked a lot about doing for ourselves with this podcast, but mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to ask in that vein, like, how did you, how do you manage to trust the, the passive income that's coming in from your different businesses to where mm -hmm. you know that you have safety for the next month or, you know, a year from now or, or something like that? Sure. That's a good question, Kyle. I, you know, I, over the years, it's always been a worry. Like I'm worried that that tap's going to run dry one of these days and that we're not doing enough for it to grow. So we do have to always be bringing in business. Like there's got to be new, new Common Craft members for that to work because they, they go away over time. But one of the things that we learned early on was, you know, teachers would tell us like, you know, hey, I like that you're doing digital downloads and I like that I can get just one video, but it would be a lot easier for me to get my school or my school district to pay for this if it was an annual subscription that gave us mm -hmm. access to everything. And what that did was got our business on annual budgets. And so once it's a line item on a budget, then it has a better chance of going on for multiple years. And that was a real revelation for us was that recurring revenue that happens on an annual basis, that as long as people continue to use the videos, and as long as we're, we continue to pro provide value, and that often comes in the form of publishing new videos, then they'll stick around. And um, like I said, being a small business, uh, we can serve a relatively small audience and, and do just fine. Yeah, and that really extends your safety net too, having it, mm -hmm. having it be an annual recurring revenue instead of just monthly. That way you're, yep. you get to look further out and make decisions exactly. for the long-term Exactly. more and more and more for the it, yeah it is it is kind of a, a safety net in that way um, we did just start doing a monthly model for the first time at common craft which is what we call streaming so that our our, our annual model 
is allows people to download video files. And that's another reason it's annual is that if it was monthly, people would just download the files and leave after a month. So they can download and embed the videos. Uh, so that's still, that's still great. That's still very much a part of our business. But we, we thought there was also a model that's streaming for people who just want to watch the videos or display them in a classroom right from our website. Yeah, that whole business model, it kind of reminds me, I was doing some reading yesterday about this guy who's sharing the tips he uses for monetizing his blog. And he was saying how important it is for, you know, from a stability and predictability standpoint, for the core income from your blog to come from the people spending money to spend it in like a B2B context. Or, you know, if it's, mm. if it's on the budget for a school and this is what they use every year in the fourth grade classroom when they do the technology week and it's no one spending their personal money, like that's where you can really get that potential for people to... You know, when these organizations, you know, you can count on them to move slow more often than not. When an individual, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like this happens and all of a sudden they're freaking out and like stuff like COVID or crazy things going on in the world. And mm -hmm. then they're less ready to, you know, sign up for kind of a more enjoyment or a, a benefit to their life. Whereas a teacher, it's something essential to their classroom and it's yep. a different, different mm -hmm. piece of that. Yeah. Yeah. We always thought about the month like that. Our customers are actually, it's more of a business to business model that our customers are not the consumers of the videos. Mm -hmm. They're the ones using the videos for their job. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wanna rewind a second on the, the passive income question. Just where did, was there a specific point when you know, you're making, this might be back kind of on the burnout question where you said, you know, we do need to divorce our time from our efforts or when did that, when did it become a priority? Cause we kind of started this discussion already. Okay, we're mm -hmm. making passive income, but how did you prioritize it? And then what were your first steps to doing that? Yeah, yeah. So it really did start with that evening when we had the discussion where we committed to those constraints. That was us choosing to focus on the passive income models over the custom model. But the, it wasn't like we flipped a switch and we could do that. We couldn't afford to do that because at the time the licensing model was making a fraction of the money. We, you know, it might, it wouldn't be able to support us at the time. So we sort of, phased it out over time. So we basically said more, said no more and more to custom projects. We only took the ones that we thought were the best ones for a while. And at the same time, what happened then was, again, it goes down to time that we only, so many, only so many hours in the day. If we fill it up making custom videos, then we don't grow the one thing we need for licensing to work, and that's our video library. So we had to stay committed to making original content no matter what. And, and that was really our focus was if this business model is going to work in licensing and, re and passive revenue, we've got our product has to get better. We have to have a bigger, better product that's that are things we own, like the things that we own the copyright for. So we weren't just saying no, because we didn't like the business model. It was an opportunity cost thing where we were trading that for time spent building our library. And how oh, do you just, think about... Uh, go for it, Kyle. Sorry. How do you think about like... <laughs> The difference between, you know, you're, you're making custom work for these companies for them to use and you're getting one check versus mm -hmm. you're making these things that can be licensed and used over and over and over and over. And mm -hmm. you're just like setting yourself up to benefit from luck or from randomness with <laughs> these with these things that are, that are licensable or I think I'm using the right word. I'm just asking about the setting yourself up to benefit from luck yeah, and how yeah. you're not doing that with the custom piece of this. It's true. I look at the custom, this may not be exactly the answer that you're looking mm -hmm. for, but I, I think about it 
as like a, a short bet and a long bet that I think services often are the short bet. Like you get hired, you do work, you get money. It happens in a few months. And once you're doing that business, then that's how your business runs is, is a constant churn of new customers, new projects, new projects, and they all pay for each other. And hopefully you're making money, more money on the products than you're spending projects than you're spending. So you can hire, you can continue to grow. But as soon as you stop taking on those clients, the money stops. There's no mm -hmm. future money from that. And so with the licensing model, we saw that it was a long bet that we might, a video might be popular and make $20 a month. And then six months later, make $200 a month or make $2,000 a month or whatever it is. But you never know that that's going to happen. You're betting <laughs> that it is, or that you can make enough videos that make $20 a month that, that it will, it will perform in some in a similar way. I'd say that really encapsulates kind of the calculus Kyle and I are dealing with ourselves right now, where, you know, we put out these episodes and we know that there's a potential that, you know, we get a certain amount of audience for a specific episode and that could make money. But in the interim, you know, does it make sense for us to seek out, you know, related paid work, you know, whether our school wants mm -hmm. us to do a mini interview project and get paid a small amount of money for that, or mm -hmm. that's not, you know, mm -hmm. contributing to our brands, but at least we're getting paid practice. Uh, and it's kind of balancing, you know, your immediate needs and your long-term goals and just what your, what your risk tolerance is. And that's exactly yeah. what we've been trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not easy. We were fortunate to be in a unique position because we were a first mover in something that happened to be popular for a while, but starting from scratch is not something that I think I could, we could just pull off. Like, like we had, we had some luck involved in, in our particular situation, but I, I do think that the, the lesson is in the right place. Like that, that there, there's something, there's some, it's worth making it a goal and figuring that out. I do, I think it's sort of like the side hustle kind of idea that you have the thing you want to do. There, actually, there's an anecdote that didn't make it into the book that was almost there before, but there's a guy named Hugh McLeod who now runs a company that uh, works with other companies in messaging, but he was famous for doing drawings on the back of business cards and it was called Gaping Void. Uh, you can look all this up, but one of his blog posts a long time ago was like, something like the, the, the theory of sex and cash. And it was about creative work. And it said, everybody wants to be having sex, but the truth is you have to do both. Like you have to make the money somehow too. And for a lot of, a lot of creatives, that means, you know, you know, being a server at a restaurant while you're working on your avant-garde video, <laughs> you know, in that case, the avant-garde video is the sex and the, the server is being the money. But he's like, if you try to do one for like doing one hardly ever works, like you have to have multiple streams and, and something to fall back on. And I always like that kind of theory of sex and cash. I think that was right. Yeah. <laughs> No, I really appreciate you sharing that because that's kind of exactly where my head's out. Like I mentioned to you before the call started on graduating in May and, you know, ultimately mm -hmm. I'd love to just be able to have this podcast and like some other writing projects be at the point where that is a source of income, but you know, you can't put all of yeah. that there because you can't predict. So it's kind of, okay, well maybe start getting that right balance of freelance gigs and then kind of that perfect middle, but you kind of, kind of through all of your answers have really reflected how you're you and your partner have had this great culture of reflection in the book. You list some of these questions, you know, what if it works or is this an opportunity or a threat? Do you have any additional questions or do you have like a, a reference sheet of those kind of really <laughs> important, important ways to kind of check your thinking and make good decisions? You know, I think that's a good idea. Um, I, I do, we don't have a reference sheet. <laughs> uh, there, there probably are notes that, went into the book where we brainstormed some things that we've been saying a lot. I think another thing that's less of a question and more of just a, 
a statement is, you know, we, we like to solve problems when they need to be solved. Mm-hmm. And there is a part in the book about how circumstance is an amazing teacher. Yeah. And I continue to believe that, that you can't, it's oftentimes a waste of time to try to plan ahead too much, that, that the best decisions are made when they need to be made. And the example for us was, you know, when we, when we made that first video in April of 2007, we had no experience making videos, especially not animated videos on a whiteboard. We had just made videos on tr- vacations before that, and we never stopped and took a course or read a book. We just did what we could with what we had. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons those videos became popular is we were very clearly couple of people in our basement trying to figure it out. And, you know, for us, it wasn't about the technical quality of the video. It was about our intention to explain something in a way that it had never been explained before. And uh, that resonated with people. How did you, how do you manage to come back to center with your wife when you guys, you know, are, are working constantly on this business for years together? Like, how do you manage to, to manage the relationship part of that? Yeah. You know, it's a constant thing. When we were around each other 24 seven, Literally, uh, except for right at the moment. She, we live, we're currently living in a guest house. It's basically a one room thing. So we have two big dogs that are wild cards when it comes to podcasts. So she takes the dogs away. <laughs> that doesn't answer your question, but that's a reality for me right now. But how do we get back to the center? I think that I really have to get Sachi credit for being the most level-headed of the two of us. She's our mm. sort of rudder. <laughs> I, I, I have more of a history of being a little bit more anxious and emotional about things and, and she's our rock. So when, when things feel like they're getting a little bit out of control or something has to happen, uh, we sit down together and I need, I'll actually ask her, I'll say, hey, we'd, I wanna have a conversation. Let me know how I can, get, I can think about this. And she's also our CFO. She, I try, I, I'm not great with details. She's really good with details and she's our sort of CFO. So we'll sit down and go through the financials and go through what opportunities we see. We call it a debrief. You know, we call it like debrief and drinks kind of thing. So once a month, we'll make a cocktail and sit and look at the record, look at the financials mm-hmm. and, and assess where we are. And even if the news isn't great, it relieves my, my pressure sometimes. And that, that's been really helpful. Yeah, that's yeah. a... It's a cool system. And I like the way you've systematized it to be a fun way. It's kind of a, a good way to combine a business and relationship and keep it lightweight, but get the important work out. And you, you'd mentioned yeah. there kind of that anxiety side of things and that something I kind of relate to early on with the show and early on, I'm saying early on is right now being early on as well. Still, <laughs> there's this part of the book where you talk about, you know, you launch the explainer network and it just every day, it's like, you're addicted to your email. You're addicted to checking your analytics dashboards and at a certain point you're like okay this is a problem and this is something i can relate to and i'm sure a lot of anyone who launches anything you know you put a blog post on the internet and you want to see how many people read it or you put your first youtube video up and you check every second to see okay did anyone watch it okay did anyone watch it so what was kind of that moment like for you and how have you dealt with kind of the temptation to constantly check those numbers it, it continues to this day, Lewis. <laughs> I mean, right now it's the book, right? The book's been out a couple yeah, exactly. of weeks. And like, I'm always looking like, are there new reviews? What's, it, what's the Amazon bestseller rank? You know, what are people saying on Twitter? So I, I want to be more in control of it, but it's fascinating. I mean, data is fascinating. And, you know, in the case that you're talking about, when someone becomes a member of Common Craft, we get emails that say, hey, this person became a member. And though we discovered through working together that those emails were either making, they were controlling my day. I I judged the happiness of my day or the way I felt or experienced the day was related to the frequency at which those emails arrived (laughs) and, uh, or not. 
And so Sachi convinced me to stop getting them, to turn off the emails so that I, I would not actually look for them. And I know where to find them still, so I can go, <laughs> I can still go look, um, which is my, what I love to do. I'm probably le least, at least less efficient because of it, but it's tough, you know? I mean, I'm, I, I admit I'm, I'm addicted to my phone and it's not just data about the business. I would, I, I, I should be tuned into other things, but she's always reminding me that I should be thinking the big picture. The, the details on the ground are her thing to think about, but it's hard. It's a, it's a hard thing. Yeah, it sounds like the answer there is a partner who tells you to stop looking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Say, you know, Lewis and I, we have access to analytics. So I look at him less than he does just because that's the way that he is and the way I am. But sometimes I'll get on there and I'll be like, yeah, we had X number of listeners. And then he'll complete the sentence before I even have a chance <laughs> to say the number. It's like, dude, maybe you should stop looking at that for a minute. But I, yeah. you know, I think we'll transition now to our bonus round. Some, some less direct thematic themed questions and more just kind of pick and choose random what we what we want to learn from you and yeah I think I'll go ahead and start here if you could give one piece of advice to yourself going into your first year as a full-time entrepreneur what would it be that's a great question I think that having having written the book and thought a lot about this I think that a lot of people when they get into business tend, and me included, tend to outsource their values to other people they admire or what they see in magazines or on TV in terms of what, kind, what you're supposed to do as an entrepreneur, like what, it, what you're supposed to be going for. And I think that it's healthier and I think hopefully more productive in a lot of ways for people to actually think about what their values actually are and, and what's really going to satisfy them over time because the assumption is it's money, you know, get rich and you're happy. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence that that's really true unless you're not able to support yourself at the time, then money really matters. But for people who are supporting themselves and, and going into a business, profit matters, money matters, but I think that other, thing matter, other things matter too and your business is likely gonna be more sustainable if you're able to create some alignment between your values and the business and to find ways to maybe think about business strategy in terms of how it might support your values that are, that are outside of money. Yeah, to touch on that, I like the quote, like when you, when you have money, you have other problems, but when you have no money, money is your only problem. So it's, yeah. it's hard to see from, from this side, but on the other side, when you do have money, you know, it's obvious that that metric isn't the one that you should be optimizing for in, in every decision. It should be your happiness, other things like, yeah. 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 There's, there's a study done by, his name is Clinging Smith at Case Western. It's about it's, a, it's based on this data that's a, like a 50 or 30 year longitudinal study of families. And it goes into the, the impact of income. And they say that for people who are struggling with money, money it has a direct correlation with happiness. But the closer you get to having 100 or $200,000 a year in income, the return on happiness, the return on that money in terms of happiness starts to wane. And what happens is people start to make more and more money thinking it's going to make them happier, but they have more obligations and less time. And that, that's something that not everybody expects. And, you know, I, that's one of the things that I think is part of the problem is people conflate, you know, where their money is coming from, <laughs> or I'm sorry, where their happiness is coming from. And I, I hope that more people see that it's, it, money helps, but it's not everything. Oh, I, I agree. One kind of kind of quippy thing I've heard a lot that encapsulates that pretty well is that money will solve all of your money problems, but that's about it. So that's once point. you've solved your like money that. problems, 
it's not going to solve the rest of your problems, like finding mm -hmm. happiness in other ways and other sources of fulfillment. But kind of uh, bouncing off the point you said there in terms of happiness, I want to ask you about your dogs because they seem like a great, a great piece of your life. And they're in the they're in the book video, the launch video, or the trailer. I'm forgetting the terminology here. And Kyle and I are potentially interviewing someone who created Dog Tinder in a couple of weeks. Oh, cool! So Neat. we've had a Neat. dogs show up in the bonus round every couple episodes. So what kind of dogs do you have? Yeah, it's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. They're Bernadoodles. So they're Ooh. a mix between a Bernese mountain dog and a poodle. No way. That's um, what my girlfriend has. Oh, really? Oh, that's uh -huh. cool. They're great dogs. Yeah, we, we were sitting around. One of our dogs got sick and passed away and we were thinking about getting another dog. And I was like, so if you could mix any two dogs, what would they be? <laughs> And Sachi said, I think a Bernese and a Poodle. And so we looked it up on the internet. This was like seven years ago. We looked it up on the internet and sure enough, there's Bernadoodles. So that started us down that path. And we got our second one a couple of years ago. So they're, they're awesome. They're, you know, we love that they don't shed and they're hypoallergenic. The allergenic, mm -hmm. that's nice. Yeah, I love Judge. That's the name of, of Caroline's dog. He's big and he's got he's like a humongous. tuxedo face. He's, he's really funny. Um, yeah, yeah. They're beautiful. Yes, sir. But <laughs> kind of on a different note, so you live on an island and because of that, you're able to, to get, you know, good seafood and fresh produce. How have you <laughs> noticed uh, a difference in, in the way it tastes, the way, the way it is versus back like anywhere else? That's interesting. You know, we, one of the things we started doing here, we live on Orcas Island, which is off the Western coast of Washington state. So where I can actually see Canada from where I'm sitting right now. So it's like a Western outpost and there's Dungeness crab here in the water, which are big, big, tasty crabs. So we're crab fisher people, crab fishers. And so we eat a lot of crab. And I, I, I think that any food that you grow or make your grow or, or catch yourself, uh, it tastes better than than any other food. So that, that's been a big change for us. But there are a lot of farms on the island and there's a lot of, of self-sufficiency here. I think that's one of the things that has become more important to us and will continue to be in the future is to try to be as self-sufficient as possible. And that's true with our business, but also our personal lives. And you know, there, a sort of a different, little bit of a different point on that is that you know, uh, we're big believers in being financially responsible. Like we, we like having nice things. We like having money, but we're also very responsible in how we spend money. And that means that it doesn't take, take as much for common craft to be successful. Like it doesn't take, if you, if you don't have huge expenses, if I'm not trying to pay for a mega yacht, I don't need that much from common craft to, for, in order for it to be successful at my scale. So that's something that I think really, you know, moving to the island becomes even more real for us. I think you expressed that last point pretty well in the book when you're talking about, you know, all these CEOs think they're, they're hot shots and they're super successful because of, you know, the money or the amount of employees or their size of their company. And you're like, well, I can make those same kind of arguments just with different numbers. No meetings in three months, <laughs> haven't left the house in weeks, like yeah, no haven't talk. had to fire yeah. anybody, <laughs> haven't had to sit through any interviews or any of job interviews, anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, can that, make my own bullet point list of how great it is. So <laughs> I think that respectability is something that's, that's really interesting and something that a lot of people who are considering lifestyle businesses as a class anyway, struggle with is like they, they are, they're smart, productive, and, and they want credit for that. And they want to show that they're capable and choosing not to have a, a, a big business is not that path. And I, I totally get that. That's totally valid in a lot of ways, but I want to make it so that there is more respectability in choosing to be small and having different values. I think it's healthier and I think healthy matters. 
And I think it's kind of like the Steve Jobs versus Steve Wozniak dichotomy where, you know, Steve Wozniak was always, he said he never wanted to be anything more than an engineer in the company. And he mm-hmm. kind of was happy once he got to his engineering role and made an impact in the world and made enough money to do all the things he said that he wanted to do. So he was like, I'm yep. just going to check out. Uh, and then Steve yep. Jobs, you know, kind of worked himself to insanity or whatever it was. And it's yeah, you know, for more sure. successful. Definitely. And I, you know, I, I, I think it's important too that I, I say in the book, and I, I believe that it, we need entrepreneurs who are aiming, aiming for the stars and are, are putting their work mm-hmm. in and, and have big dreams and, and making those decisions. Like there's, that's a good thing. And, I, and some of those, those people are my heroes, but my message is not that that's bad. My message is that there might be more choices and opportunities than, than you realize. And that I want to be a model of, of how to think a little bit differently. Definitely. To switch directions here, different question. So Kyle and I, what if we want to make an explainer video? We're like, you know what, Lewis and Kyle in plain English, what are we about? What are the best tools available in the marketplace for someone like us to just make a short, effective animated video explaining sure, sure. a topic like um, that? You know, Commoncraft is a, a partner with a company called Beyond. They were formerly called GoAnimate. And they have this browser-based tool that makes it super easy to make videos right inside the browser. If you don't need special software or tools, Vyond is like V-Y-O-N-D. And our partnership is that they have our artwork, Common Craft cutouts inside their tool. So that's an easy way to make a video. You know, we have something called the Explainer Academy, which is uh, online courses that we've created to help people become better explainers, but also make what we call DIY animated videos. And we have, you know, chapters all the way from from writing a script to creating a storyboard to recording a voiceover, doing animations, all that at the at explaineracademy.com. And actually, if from commoncraft.com, there are discount codes on the front page or the, a link on the front page to the discounts for those courses. Perfect. Awesome. And then one last question here in terms of building a custom house. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you made when building your house that you would advise someone to avoid? I was the real estate owner on this podcast. So he's always yeah. talking yeah. about a mid-project like that. Literally half an hour before here, I was at the site talking to our contractor. We, were, we both were about things. I think that the, th- the lessons I've learned, this is not a huge mistake, but the lessons I've learned, and this is my reality right now, is that you can plan all you want about how things are going to be. But again, circumstance is the best teacher. Like You can't really make the final decision until you see that something is built first. In the abstract, you can imagine it and, and write something down, but... You really have to experience it on the ground and make the decision, you know, with the context of what's already been built. That that's really powerful, and it's really. And the other thing is to try to be as ge- geographic, geographically close to the project as you can, because we 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 talk to the contractor at least once a day. We're there at least once a day, and if we were living mm-hmm. on the mainland trying to manage this project, it wouldn't we wouldn't be able to be as much a part of it. I think being a part of it is a really big deal. And we love that anyway. Not everybody loves that, but we, we want to be a huge part of it. That's awesome. I would also add that you, you want to see where the sun sets and where the sun falls on your own. Your- That's great. Yeah, we lived, we lived at this spot for a year and a half before building. And it, it really taught us where the, wind, where the wind comes from at different times of the year. And also, yeah, the sun all mm-hmm. across the year. Th- those things are, are huge. My, my parents' house in Las Vegas did not think about the wind. It is perfectly angled, where if you put like an outdoor <laughs> ceiling fan... Like they will get ripped out once every two weeks, no, no matter what, just because really just like, wow, that perfect spot is the perfect wind tunnel. And yeah, every funny. house on that side of the street just gets 
their outdoor ceiling fans, no matter how much you bolted in there, it just gets ripped out. So, so that's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. It's just a, a strange yeah, no, detail. It's, an, it's but, an important thing for sure. Yeah. Trust the professionals. That's one of the things we always say is like people come into these process pro- projects with a lot of ideas, but the pro- professionals have been through it before and, and sometimes they're listened to and sometimes they're not, but we often defer to, to their experience in a lot of things, architects and builders. Definitely. But yeah, I'm sharing some of the, the, construction progress at Instagram. I'm so okay. we'll probably mention this at the end, but I'm one of the people who doesn't have competition for my name. And so I'm Lee Lefever pretty much everywhere, including Instagram. Well, perfect. That's is where we want to send people. So someone did enjoy this conversation. We piqued their curiosity about the book. What's the best way for them to find it and support you as, you know, like you said, it's you're trying to get some, some traction with the book. So what's yeah. going to be most helpful? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the book is called Big Enough, and you can find it at bigenough.life. So that's a little bit odd domain, but it's bigenough.life. And my ride, the home of my writing and, and past and future books is Leela Fever, my name, leelafever.com, and my company is commoncraft.com. And uh, awesome. you, can also, there's all, you can also download a free chapter if you want a sample at bigenough.life. That's great. I definitely recommend the book, so y'all should check it out. Yeah, thanks for awesome. having me. It was fun. Thank you so much, Lee. And that wraps up our interview with Lee Lefevre. You know, as we said in the beginning, it was just a a really good conversation. And it's inspiring to see the intentionality that he put toward this business and and what he's created. And it'll it'll be good to to see what he creates in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think there are a few really big ideas I really uh, appreciated hearing from him. I think the idea of circumstance as an amazing teacher really helped address some of the things I'm trying personally to figure out right now. I'm kind of trying to set, I'm graduating, you know, in May, six months from now or so, and I'm really trying to think through what I'm going to do when I graduate to kind of get myself started to live the kind of lifestyle I want to live and do, run the kind of business and make the kind of money to have the life I want to have. And, you know, maybe it's good to be proactive on some of those things, but other things are going to sort themselves out when you know necessity is the mother of all innovation and that kind of helped me quell some of the anxiety i've been having about some of those conversations and some of the thinking on that and again the same idea as well of sex and pizza or sex and cash or whatever you called it how if you're a creator you know the classic example is that the waitress in new york city who wants to get on broadway and my example it's you know trying to create content and have some of these more entrepreneurial ventures and you know pursue that ideal of passive income but kind of have a balanced approach to doing so where you know, like we brought on Jacob McMillan and I can focus on if I need to in the interim balancing, you know, that freelancing to make enough money that pays the bills and also does, you know, support learning on the projects I want to do while allowing for, you know, some of the long term effects of compounding and the content business model to actually take in. And that was a really helpful way for me to contextualize how I'm planning to divide my time in the circumstance that will hopefully be an amazing teacher a couple months from now. Anyway, that's a little bit of where I'm at, like we said, learning in public, documenting our journey, but call us to action here for you all. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Lee, want to learn more about how to grow a business that is big enough to support your lifestyle, I highly recommend the book. You can find it on Amazon or on Lee Lefevre's website by searching Google for Lee Lefevre or Lee Lefevre Big Enough. It's a short book, very simple, easy language. You can probably read it in an afternoon if you're so inclined. I'd recommend it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us and want to encourage us to create similar content, interview more people like Lee, please give us feedback on any social media channel. If you want to help us grow, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or give us a like on social media. Tell a friend about the show. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you in a week with the next episode. Have a good one.